Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Kia ora and welcome to episode 7 of From Zero, I'm Russell Brown. In this final episode we'll look at the pressure for reform of global drug laws and the reasons that reform is so elusive. Last month, the British Medical Journal joined The Lancet in calling for the legalisation and regulation of all drugs. US President Barack Obama declared that marijuana prohibition in America is now unsustainable and the Global Commission on Drug Policy, a think tank stacked with former world leaders, called for an end to the criminalisation of drugs. To understand what's happening here, we need to go back to the source of global drug law, the United Nations. Greetings. This is Tuari Portiki, Director of Māori Development at the University of Otago and the Chair of the New Zealand Drug Foundation, addressing UNGAS 2016, the UN General Assembly special session on drugs in April. Sometimes when we are threatened we go to war and sometimes we go to war against the wrong people. If we decided to wage war against cancer, would we do that by bombing the people who have cancer? Many nations have joined up to wage a war against drugs and have ended up attacking and harming people who really are in need of our help and our support. You are here to discuss the world drug problem, but many of you directly contribute to that problem by denying your citizens access to the vital support, such as harm reduction, the support that saved my life. You are actively blocking progress towards providing help to those who most need it. I believe that if you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. Finally, if there is a war to be fought, and I believe that there is, it should be a war on poverty, on disparity, on dispossession, and on the multitude of political and historical factors that have left and continue to leave so many people vulnerable and in jeopardy. Tuari's was a powerful speech, greeted from the gallery with a mihi totoko from Māori public health worker Papa Nahi that for a few precious seconds interrupted the grind of UN process. Nō reira, tēnā and thank you. Nice. I thank the representative of civil society in accordance with GA Resolution 70-181. The speech had been shoved back to the last hour of the last day of the meeting. 
Although I'd been granted full media accreditation, I only got to the public gallery to hear it by sneaking around several security checkpoints and up the back stairs to the famous chamber. It was hard to avoid the feeling that someone didn't want these speakers widely heard. The squeeze was underway two days earlier, on the first official day of the meeting. Outside the UN on First Avenue that morning, I encountered a group of mostly young people doled up in 1920s attire, handing out a mock newspaper called the Post-Prohibition Times. So I asked what was going on. So my name is Sharda Sekera and I'm the Communications Director at the Drug Policy Alliance. And I'm here because we're an organisation that's promoting um, an alternative to the drug war. We want to see an end of criminalisation and um, all the problems and health consequences and incarceration that have come with the drug war. So we're here because of this UN gathering. It's the big General Assembly special session around drug policy, and we're trying to raise awareness by drawing parallels to alcohol prohibition and drug prohibition. So I'm showing that similarly, they don't work, and they actually propel more violence and problems. They do nothing to deal with the harms of addiction and drug abuse, same as alcohol. So we have all these actors and performers out here wearing costumes from the Prohibition era, handing out a newspaper that has a sign-on letter um, where we got support from leaders from around the world, um, dignitaries, former presidents, um, athletes, celebrities, business leaders, all kinds of people signing on in support, asking the UN to take this opportunity of the special session as a, as a chance to say that the drug war is failed and we should do something different. We don't want more of the same. Um, last time they had this gathering in 98, their, their slogan was, a drug-free world, we can do it. And we hope that they come up with something more meaningful this time. A better thing would be the drug wars fail. Let's try something new. The paper's lead story was an open letter to the UN calling for an end to the drug war. New Zealanders among the thousand-odd signatories included Labour MP Jacinda Ardern and Northland GP and former New Zealander of the Year Lance O'Sullivan. The group had already been told to relocate back across the road from the UN where they handed out newspapers to UNGAS delegates. And while Sharda negotiated their continued presence with a friendly NYPD officer, another Alliance staffer arrived with some startling news. Word is that the uh, security is taking the, the newspapers upon entry and that there are orders from the UN. That's what I just heard from somebody who just walked in. It seemed extraordinary. Security guards were preventing delegates from taking material on drug policy into a meeting on drug policy? I did the only thing a journalist could do, took as many copies of the paper as my satchel would hold and carried them through security myself. Ironically, most countries present at UNGAS, New Zealand included, supported to some degree the open letters call for change. This third grand meeting on drug policy in UN history had been brought forward two years at the request of Latin American leaders, who called for a review of the current drug control system taking in, quote, all available options, including regulatory or market measures. This was a big shift from the last drugs on gas in 1998, which came up with the slogan, a drug-free world, we can do it. Then UN drug czar Pino Alachi even put a date on this drug-free world, 2008. In 2008, the Irish broadcaster RTE screened a documentary called War Without End, in which Alachi's successor, Antonio Maria da Costa, denied the words had ever been spoken. Critics of the global strategy of prohibition today point back 10 years ago to the United Nations Special Assembly in 1998 and its much-touted slogan and aims for the decade that's just ended. 
1998, the UN General Assembly met in order to declare its new 10-year drug strategy. So its vision for 2008, which was a drug-free world, we can do it. And then they set out the objectives of reducing the overall production of opium and cocaine, I think, by 50 percent by 2008, by this year. Here we are, 2008. Looks like we failed. At the UN today, the drug-free world slogan of 1998 appears something of an embarrassment. I would like to remind you that the United Nations never used the world a drug-free world. In no official documents of the United Nations you find reference to a drug-free world. The UN website, however, shows that the drug-free world slogan was official in 1998. We never used at the United Nations, in no paper, in no documents, in no statement by the General Assembly, the notion of a drug-free world. But you're, you're, yes, but you're playing with language, because the slogan no, no. at that special congress was a drug-free world, we can do it. No. What you are making reference is to one specific poster that someone produced in 1998, presumably, which I have seen. Which you disown was not invented by us and it is uh, it was used as a as a slogan i admit but it is not the target of the united nations the fact that mr costa today so determinedly distances himself from a slogan used freely by his predecessor in 1998 speaks volumes Kofi Annan, at the time, wrote of the celebrations that would come in 2008, of how the UN would be able to say then, a drug-free world, we have done it. Today, nobody at the UN is using that kind of language. In February this year, Kofi Annan, yes, the same Kofi Annan, wrote an essay for Der Spiegel calling for the legalisation and regulation of all drugs. We need to accept, he wrote, that a drug-free world is an illusion. A string of UN agencies led by the United Nations Development Programme under Helen Clark also published submissions before UNGAS, calling for decriminalisation and other reforms. Reform advocates were realistic. There was little prospect of change to the UN drug conventions, the basis of international drug control since 1961. But perhaps the words harm reduction might be finally adopted. They weren't. Less than an hour after my First Avenue encounter, the General Assembly adopted its outcome document as first order of business. The document failed to include the words harm reduction or even to condemn capital punishment for drug offences. The UN consensus principle had been manipulated by a relatively small group of countries, notably China, Russia, Indonesia, Iran and Saudi Arabia, who opposed any reform. Two days later, after the last of the speeches, I stood outside the building looking across the Hudson River with my friend San Ho Tree. He's a former military historian and head of the Drug Policy Project at the Institute of Policy Studies in Washington. Is the whole thing broken now, I asked him. I think what uh, the UNGAS uh, has displayed is that um, the fundamental breakdown of this false consensus. All the speeches from the, the countries in Latin America, uh, Western Europe, a lot of other countries, um, in, in Australia and New Zealand, uh, people are dissenting on issues like the death penalty, on harm reduction, um, and they're basically saying they absolutely disagree with this and that uh, it should be in the outcome document. Um, and whatever happens, I think, you know, we've, we've shattered this idea that there's a global consensus around the war on drugs and we're headed in two different worlds now. Um, unfortunately, you know, there are people living in the regressive states 
who are humans and they deserve uh, basic rights and they're being trampled upon. Um, and while on the one hand it's great that we're going to have more liberalized drug policies in parts of the world, uh, it's unfortunate that uh, the, the, the other parts of the world, um, these, these rights don't apply. Was there a sense that Ungas's success might lie in its failure? That no one would now feel bound by this supposed consensus? I think there's a lot of benefit to that um, because it, it, you can't go on with this, this farce uh, where go governments come together and you know, slap each other in the back and, and give laudatory speeches and uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bunch of, um, I don't know, uh, it's been very frustrating getting any truth out of this uh, process. Um, speaking honestly, speaking frankly uh, about these issues. These are all um, platitudes and bromides, basically, uh, with the occasional dissent. So I think uh, in the run-up to 2019, the next time they're going to uh, deal with this issue, uh, I think it's going to be very clear that the world is, is, is moving apart uh, much faster than continental drift, uh, which had been the pace of, of change up until now, up until recently. Uh, but the change is happening very, very rapidly. I've been working on this issue since the 1998 on gas, uh, and I've seen more change in the past three or four years than I have in the previous 15 years combined. So the velocity of change is happening very, very quickly. I think all these other member states from the regressive parts of the world uh, are hearing loud and clear um, from all the protests, protests here, all the social media, the overwhelming uh, uh, representation here on, uh, from civil society from all over the world opposing the war on drugs, that their days are numbered in terms of how, how much longer they can get away with this. These are repressive governments for the most part. It's a rogues list of, of nations that um, that most people wouldn't want to live in uh, with very unrepresentative governments. And those are the ones who are primarily holding out and insisting that only the tough line approach uh, should be taken. Sanho and I walked across town to the pop-up Museum of Drug Policy, funded for the week by George Soros's Open Society Foundations. There, civil society wasn't letting a rough day get in the way of a conscious party. I was sitting in the back of the museum today when I got an email that said Prince Rogers Nelson was not with us anymore. I know I'm not the only one who had a broken heart. And it may seem like it's strange to talk about him in a space that's about drug policy, but it's not. The thing about doing the work around drug policy is the thing about getting free. It's about not being a slave anymore. And that's what Prince did for us. He shook off all of those shackles. He said, F the music industry. F you all, you can't even say my name. You haven't earned the right to say my name. You haven't earned the right to say any R's name. I'm going to play my 17 instruments. I'm going to do anything I want. I'm going to be androgynous. I'm going to tell you, you got to call me like this. And so tonight, for one last time in this space, let's say his name. Prince! 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 Let me hear you reborn! Prince! 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 Let me hear it! Prince! What we didn't know that day was that Prince was a victim of America's opioid crisis, which has seen millions of people become dependent on powerful new prescription painkillers pushed cynically into the market by big pharmaceutical firms. As the prescription tap has been turned off 15 years too late, many addicts have turned to street heroin and all the risks that brings. Another speaker was Eugene Jarecki, director of the drug war documentary The House I Live In, a powerful indictment of the connection between prohibition, race 
and imprisonment. I find myself here in the unimaginable place, would have not been imaginable 10 years ago, that the drug war would have become so desperately embarrassed as a national tragedy that you could now have gatherings like this at the United Nations and gatherings like this in this kind of true United Nations where we can really look at this thing and begin to see the end of it. It was never imaginable, and thanks to the tireless efforts of so many from OSF to Russell Simmons and Michael and so many other long-distance fighters for justice, in this thing, and I'm just honored to be a part of a place where art has in many ways gotten ahead of social change and led the way. There's an old adage in Washington that says, uh, the politician says, where should I, you know, where are my people going? Let me go there so I can lead them. And I think the people are leading in this. We are leading here. You're listening to From Zero, a podcast series about New Zealanders and drugs. I'm Russell Brown. Another New Zealander had stood before the General Assembly that week, Associate Health Minister Peter Dunn. Now it has been a welcome development in recent years to see the shift away from treating drugs as primarily a law and order responsibility to a health focus. But let us not rest on our laurels. Last year at CND 58, I spoke of the importance of three fundamental pillars of drug policy, proportion, compassion and innovation. New Zealand has woven these principles throughout its approach to addressing drug issues and has included them as central tenets in our recently released national drug policy. But perhaps there is a fourth pillar that is missing, the pillar of boldness. Incremental movement, if any, has been the norm for drug policy development for as long as I can remember. And that movement has not always been forward. But as encouraging as the shift has been, the fact is that compared to the global narcotic industries, we are moving at a glacial pace, hamstrung by an overly outdated and excessively punitive approach. I asked Mr Dunn recently what boldness might look like in a New Zealand context. Well, boldness in the New Zealand context is the psychoactive substances, eh? Boldness in the New Zealand context is, I think, a number of the things in the national drug policy, for instance, the review of the penalties regime that we're going to do next year, the review of paraphernalia that's on at the moment, uh, the issues around um, fetal alcohol syndrome, where we've, we've put together a pretty massive uh, policy package for the first time. Um, and I think the other things I call for compassion, proportion and innovation go hand in hand with that. Um, We have, I think, on the whole, uh, a pretty compassionate approach at the moment. Uh, You don't see, contrary to public myth, large numbers of people being thrown in jail. We certainly don't have the death penalty or anything like that, and no one's ever seriously suggested that. But in terms of putting ourselves in the international perspective, we're very much at the good guy's end of that spectrum. And I think that what will happen over the next few years, in our own particularly pragmatic way, we will see change occur, not necessarily through specific pronouncement, but just we just do things in New Zealand stealthily and by gradual practice. Um, The police, I think, are are in some areas showing a lot more astuteness um, than they were, and uh, I work fairly closely with them. uh, And I think that you'll just see some of these attitudes slowly change and develop, at which point then it becomes a matter of, so what was all the fuss about? In other words, the very kind of incrementalism that the minister told the UN was past its time. 
Surely it's time for a thorough review of the Misuse of Drugs Act 1975 to assess its fitness for purpose. Just joking, we had one of those in 2010. The Minister of Justice has poured cold water on a Law Commission report seeking reform of the Drugs Act. The discussion paper wants drug use to be seen as a health issue as well as a criminal matter. It calls for minor drug offenders to be sent to treatment centres instead of jail and wants police resources targeted at drug dealers instead of users. But Justice Minister Simon Power says treating drug users more leniently isn't something the government is willing to consider. I want to make it absolutely clear, the Prime Minister has made the war against pee and drugs a key part of his um, leadership, and as long as I'm the Minister of Justice, we will not be relaxing drug laws. Simon Power is no longer the Minister of Justice, or even an MP. But the language, communicated to Power in 2010 in a blunt phone call from then Prime Ministerial Chief of Staff Wayne Eagleson, has remained the same. The government will not relax or soften our 40-year-old drug law. Nothing will change. The irony is that everything is changing around the law. The national drug policy overseen by Minister Dunn signals a clear shift away from criminalisation towards proportional responses founded in public health principles. And individual police officers now exercise a degree of discretion in drug cases that goes far beyond the law. If the police do things the Parliament won't, says Peter Dunn, that's just Kiwi pragmatism. Well, that's what I'm saying, that, that, that I think that uh, to some extent the, the pragmatism that I refer to um, is, is, I think, a New Zealand characteristic. We don't necessarily need to pass laws to do things. You know, we, not just in the drug sphere, but in many other areas, we have understandings. We, we, we acknowledge ways that work. I'll give you a, a very specific example. Um, there are calls from time to time for us to adopt a, a compassionate, um, I forget the, the term, but it's, a, it's New South Wales is the classic example, where you, there's, a, there's a list of people who are terminally ill who are using cannabis-based products um, to ease their suffering. And the police know not to touch anyone on that list. We don't have that in New Zealand because the police know that that's an area they don't go to anyway. So we don't have a formal list and a formal register, and probably we won't. But the impact will be the same. People aren't going to get picked up for it. It's that sort of pragmatism and decency, which is, I think, just a New Zealand characteristic. And a lot of that applies to the way in which we address um, uh, drug-related issues, and increasingly so. And yet I know of people in Auckland who claim to have been growing for medical for other people who were picked up in the cannabis recovery operation. Well, I think that's a slightly different issue because one of the problems that, that neither the New South Wales or any other framework addresses is the issue of supply. Uh, I think that the, the focus is on, on use in those circumstances, but the, the bit that people don't tell you is that under the New South Wales example, for instance, it's still illegal to supply. So there will be these issues at the margin. I think that that opens up a much bigger issue, which um, there are two separate issues here, really, but they get con conflated. Uh, there's the issue about the legal status or what's our future legal view about recreational cannabis, and that, if you, that is over here. Then there's the issue of cannabis-based medical products. The two somehow get woven in together. I've heard people who are strongly in favour of the recreational issue argue against any relaxation on the medicinal side because they say it 
detracts from their case. I've heard people who are strongly in favour argue the opposite position too. So I think we've got to separate them out. And I'm a little suspicious when I hear people who piously say, well, I've been supplying not for recreational reasons, just for medicinal purposes for years. Um, because we know that the, the products that people are using are actually not the raw product, but a processed product, either the, the oil or, or, or um, a spray or something of that nature. So I get a wee bit suspicious about some of those claims. Hmm. Nonetheless, is, is there at some point a limit to police discretion as a solution? Oh, there always is, but I think in, I think in this space at the moment, if you look at the overall environment that we have, where for people who genuinely seek access to a cannabis-based medicinal product, despite again the popular noise, the hoops are not that great to go through. I think that um, as that becomes more understood and perhaps greater use made of that by doctors, and I think doctors have frankly got to step up to the plate to a much greater extent than they have been to date, then I think that you know some of, everything else sort of fits in around that. But at the moment what we have is a situation where this is still seen as very new, not just in New Zealand, but worldwide. And, and there are so many conflicting messages out there. I was being besieged last week with messages from people saying, look at that British um, House of Commons Select Committee report, and why aren't we doing that in New Zealand? Uh, well, actually, that was a group of MPs in Britain. It wasn't the government. But what they were calling for in terms of a, an access regime in house is exactly what we already have in New Zealand. But again, the perception is that we are somehow behind the eight ball. If you look, um, you know, if you listen to what countries were saying in New York and measure where we are, we are very much at the progressive end of the scale. Now, people might argue that we're not progressive enough, but compare the New Zealand situation with um, parts of Europe, Australia, for instance. Uh, we are we are ahead, and I think you know that that's one of the frustrations in this game. Really, is is, is seeing that overview and seeing all of the sorts of things that people claim to want, and knowing how achievable by comparison those things are in New Zealand as opposed to other countries, but not being able to get that message across. Well, kinda. New Zealand has been a leader on practical measures like needle exchanges and opioid substitution, but we're miles off the pace on fresh approaches to cannabis. And two opinion polls this year have indicated that two-thirds of New Zealanders want a fresh approach to cannabis, be it legalisation or decriminalisation. Support for reform on medical cannabis was overwhelming in both polls. Editorials in the New Zealand Herald, the Press and the Dominion Post all joined the call for change. But John Key affirmed on Morning Report in August that the 40-year-old drug law would not be touched. This uh, poll, nearly two-thirds of people either want to decriminalise or legalise cannabis. Do you agree? Well, I've got to say I'm not a massive fan. Um, it's been my long-standing view, really, that um, you know one of the things that Parliament does is send a message to people about um, activity we want to see or not want to see. And um, in the case of drugs, um, I think if we were, as a Parliament, were to decriminalise, then one of the messages we'd be sending is that yeah, increased drug use is okay. Now I know that people would say, well, you know, um, it seems a bit silly given this widespread, you know, recreational use, and we know that. But I don't think the police really, for the most part, do prosecute OK, I just pick you up on that, though, because isn't your job as a parliamentarian, the job of parliament is to make laws, not to send some sort of subliminal message to someone about what they do. And if the law is not fit for purpose, 
then change the law. Well, I don't think that's right. I mean, we send longer sentences, for instance, for um, domestic violence because we're trying to send a message as a parliament uh, that we're deeply opposed to the domestic violence statistics in New Zealand. We're going to do something about it. And I think, you know... So do you think the law is working currently? Uh, not perfectly at all. But, but what I would say is, uh, firstly, I think not always the case, but in a lot of cases, the police do not prosecute and do not go well, let's after look people. at what the police do. And then, all of a sudden... John Key was no longer Prime Minister. Might his departure and the removal of the need for anyone to back down make space for change? The actions we have taken, the actions we take now, have effects. It's not some benign state. A system which offers an economic incentive for methamphetamine to displace marijuana as a social drug cannot be said to be working perfectly. So, if it's not working, what might we change? What evidence should we look at? What seems a good example to follow? What would be right for us? We just can't afford to throw away something like the Law Commission review. We can't afford to refuse the discussion altogether. We also don't want to make law in wartime, which is essentially what happened with the Psychoactive Substances Act, an attempt to regulate a raging market whose key services weren't even in place by the time it was knackered by an amendment. Only one MP voted against that act, they flocked to support the amendment that broke it. That act sits there, inert, until a way occurs around the amendment prohibiting animal testing. No pharmaceutical drugs are approved now without some animal testing. International safety standards require it. Actually, not quite true. Animal trial evidence from overseas can be accepted as evidence, but only if it shows harm. If it suggests the product might pass the act's test of posing only a low risk of harm, it must be disregarded. Yep, that's an actual law. There are many conspiracy theories about the Psychoactive Substances Act, not least in the cannabis reform community. They're not true. The truth is more compelling, and that's the fact that the way synthetic cannabis became the test case for the new law is both a tragedy and a vivid illustration of how much our laws need a rethink. No drug controlled under the Misuse of Drugs Act is eligible for regulation under the PSA. And the range of drugs controlled under the Misuse of Drugs Act is extremely broad. Unlike laws in most other countries, its analogue provisions automatically capture any chemical deemed similar to the one already classified. This has had a result. And that result has been a system that has privileged the newest and weirdest drugs. Like BZP party pills before them and N-bomb after... Synthetic cannabinoids got through the gate because they weren't like anything else. And yet, the Psychoactive Substances Act, neutered as it is, represents a decent starting point for a regulated cannabis market. Perhaps more importantly, it revived a debate about the law around natural cannabis that had fallen quiet. Why, people asked, would we be privileging a crazy cluster of new chemicals and excluding the one we knew? And then... Helen Kelly stood up. Her one last campaign, her frankness about using cannabis to ease the symptoms of her illness, changed the conversation. I take the oil at night, I take tincture, which is just an ointment, which is coconut oil and cannabis, rubbed on the sore bits. You just think, what a hippie, you know, it's not going to work. Um, but it works amazingly. And that helps me sleep all night, really. If I take an oil tablet and this tincture, I can just have this bone comfort. And that's the difference. The morphine does a brain sort of comfort and knock you out, make you la-la, which is still quite nice and good. And I need. 
But without the cannabis, I have pain. I've been writing about evidence-based drug policy for a few years now. As my friends like to joke, drugs are my specialist subject. But making this podcast series has only deepened my view that prohibition as we practice it has to change. There are risks in reform, always, but there may be greater risks in continuing to do what we do now. And while it's complicated, it's not a mission to Mars. We have 30 years of cannabis decriminalisation in South Australia to look at. We can take lessons from the legalised trade in Colorado, from the state monopoly model in Uruguay, perhaps the cannabis clubs of Europe, which offer a legal means of supply without the damaging commercialism of alcohol and tobacco, would be right for us. We can't just keep on slipping the wink to people like Helen Kelly. Perhaps she wouldn't be prosecuted, but the people who grow and process the cannabis she used would still be treated harshly by the law. I caught up recently with Tuari Portiki, whose speech opened this episode. He aspires to the example of Portugal, which 15 years ago decriminalised possession of all drugs. It's hardly a libertarian paradise. The state can still limit your freedom as it addresses your drug problem, but it won't throw you to the courts and prisons. Portugal was moved to action by a crisis around heroin use. It worked. Drug-related death and harm has plummeted there, even as it has risen in strongly prohibitionist states like Russia and Sweden. Could methamphetamine be taking us to that place of crisis? I think it definitely needs... There needs to be a catalyst for change. It's not just going to happen organically, and it's not going to happen because the politicians are suddenly going to wake up and decide to change things. Unfortunately, the way that significant change has occurred in New Zealand over the last 20 years, and I'm thinking about, um, firstly, the, uh, the establishment of the Mental Health Commission and all the money that went into mental health, that, that was on the back of a couple of tragedies. There was a, a very, very sad case down in Vicargo, the guy who killed his mother, who was schizophrenic. That created the Mason Report, which then led to the establishment of the Mental Health Commission, Renfence funding for mental health. And similarly, it was the um, a bottle store worker getting shot and killed up here in Auckland. That led to the Law Commission review and, and a whole lot of work and energy around law change for alcohol. <coughs> so, um, you know, very sadly, I think, I think it's going to be those sorts of issues that trigger a, a broader look at reform. Because I think you're right, I mean, once um, methamphetamine at the moment is uh, the lightning rod. Um, but if, you know, once, I think if, you have to, if you're going to take action on one, it's very hard not to then include others or to argue why you shouldn't include others. So it could be the catalyst for change. But treating all drug use as problematic is problematic in itself. Sometimes you have to ask exactly what you're treating. And the British medical journal The Lancet, Kofi Annan and many others hold that in the end, decriminalisation will not suffice because it leaves the criminal market in place. Legalisation doesn't mean selling meth at the corner dairy. It might mean saying, we don't think you should be using this drug, we'll help you stop, but until then, you can get it or a substitute legally at this unglamorous clinic. 
If it all seems like a crazy fantasy, well, needle exchanges did to some people in 1987. In 2016, they play a crucial role in diagnosing and delivering treatment for the hepatitis C epidemic that occurred because we didn't have needle exchanges. They're the one place those people can come to where they're not stigmatised. When Jim Anderton amended the law to make it easier for IV drug users to use the exchanges without being prosecuted, future Health Minister Tony Ryle gave an awful speech in Parliament. The bill would make it, quote, nigh on impossible to prosecute any intravenous drug user who possesses a needle and was, quote, all part of a politically correct liberal agenda. As Minister of Health, he would go on to do precisely nothing about this liberal outrage. Perhaps it was all just politics. And perhaps we need extraordinary events to short-circuit the political process. Maybe we need that mihi totoko from the gallery. From Zero is a seven-part podcast series for RNZ. You can subscribe or listen to every episode on iTunes or radionz.co.nz forward slash series. Don't forget to rate us. We're also on Spotify. This episode was produced by Russell Brown and engineered by Blair Stagpole, Rangi Powick and Jeremy Ansell. The executive producers were Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. Kakite anō.